There's a, a book written called The Three Edwards, and the author describes the life of a duke in what is modern-day Belgium, and his name is Edward III. He was from the 14th century and, again, what's now Belgium. Edward III was grossly overweight. In fact, he had a nickname in Latin, was Crassus, which basically meant fat. So everybody called him Fat Edward. True story. Um, so there was a violent quarrel between um, uh, uh, Reginald, uh, and I'm sorry, it was Reginald. His brother was Edward. I lied to you, Village Church. So there's a the Crassus, fat, fat Crassus was Reginald III. His brother was Edward. And they had a violent quarrel. Um, ultimately, Edward took Crassus, or Reginald III, and he put him not in a normal prison. Uh, in fact, he captured him and he put him in one of his castles, in one of the rooms. And the room had a normal size door. The room had normal sized windows. Uh, and what he did is he told him, you can leave whenever you want. So what he did is day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, what Edward did to fat Reginald was that he would send him tons of delicacies day in and day out, knowing knowing that what Reginald would do, what he would indulge himself. And day after day, week after week, after 10 years, Reginald was never able to leave the room. Uh, Edward was accused by many of cruelty. And here is what Edward would tell people when, they, when he was accused of cruelty. He would say this, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so Wills. After 10 years, Edward finally dies in battle, and uh, Reginald's subjects now come in and they free him, and he dies shortly thereafter from health-related issues. What's interesting is that he died from weight complications because of an addiction, because of an insatiable desire, and it ended up holding himself into prison. Now, here's what I have learned being a pastor of Village Church. I have learned that the Christian church, that many of the men and also the women are in active prison right now. The, the, the main difference is that our prison is not necessarily gluttony of food for the majority of us, it is lust. Now this is an unusual subject for some of you. You come to church and you're like, the pastor's gonna talk about lust. This is not unusual for me. Um, week in, week out, month in, month out, my wife and I and many of the pastors are dealing with more sexual dysfunctions than we could possibly communicate. And it starts in the heart and it works itself out into everyday lives. And this is a significant and life-altering reality, and it's not just the person sitting next to you, it's all over the place. And it's not just men, it is women. And our heart is broken over the sexual brokenness and dysfunction that begins, first and foremost, not with what has been done to you, but what is already in our hearts. So open up your Bibles with me, Matthew chapter five. We're gonna be in verse 27. We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, right now, Jesus is defending himself. He's defending himself against an accusation. And the accusation would come from the religious leaders, and it would go something like this. Um, Jesus wants to destroy the law. He has no respect for the law, and Jesus wants to create chaos and anarchy. And we know that is not the case. In fact, Jesus wants to make a couple things clear. Number one, Jesus wants to tell everybody, I have not come to abolish the law, but to perfectly obey every nuance of the law, not just externally, but internally from the very heart. But number two, he wants to make something clear to everybody listening. The last couple weeks, we've tried to make this as clear to you as possible. You are the lawbreakers, not Jesus. 
We are the lawbreakers. He would look at the entire crowds and here's what he's trying to get through to them. This is not about me abolishing the law. The law was written because you, at the very core of your being, are breaking the law. And not just the 613 Jewish laws, but you are breaking the moral law. This law divinely imprinted on the heart and the soul and the mind of every human being that has ever lived. You are in rebellion against God and against the moral law and the Jewish law. You're guilty. And we're going to see even his warning of hell come up multiple times in this sermon. Because here's the reality that our guilt is causing us to be damned to hell. And at this point, your response should be, if I'm guilty, then how do I get out of hell? How do I make things right with God? How do we get this better? And these are some of the things that Jesus is trying to answer. So last week it was anger. This week it's lust. What do they have in common? Here's what they have in common. Anger and lust are such that if not tamed, they grow. This is their nature and their inevitable outcome. Lust and anger, if not tamed and put under control, will absolutely grow. It is their necessary and desired outcome. You and I, in the flesh, are not created with the capacity and the power to tame anger and lust. We need divine help. These are more powerful than we give them credit for. Now look at point number one in your notes. My lust incriminates me. Verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And this is from the 10, say it with me, commandments. Good. Applies to everybody, male, female. Adultery causes you to be judged on the human court, the Jewish court. It was illegal and it was punishable by death. But one of the things that Jesus is trying to get them out of is this mindset that the human court is the most important court. There is a court with superior jurisdiction to the human court, and that is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the judge of angels and humanity. And Jesus Christ judges not just what is done externally, but what is done in our minds, what is done in our hearts, Even the things that we have not done yet, but intend to do, the oughts, the should'ves, the would'ves, and the could'ves. Like this is a level of judgment that the majority of the people are not paying attention to, and they believe somehow that if I don't do the deed, that I am somehow innocent. And Jesus is like, you're missing a major point. Yes, Jewish courts cannot prosecute intention, but God can, because God knows with certainty not what is just on the outside, but what is in the head and in the heart. And so verse 28, Jesus goes on and he says, but, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. At this point, the majority of the men listening are being declared guilty before God for violating the law, and they will now be liable to the divine jurisdiction's punishment. The earthly punishment is death, and God, Jesus here, has already made it clear that if you're found guilty of the law, then your divine sentencing will be hell. Like, this is powerful. Jesus does not mince words, right? Like, you don't go read the Sermon on the Mount to say, Jesus is a good moral teacher, right? Jesus is offensive, 
And few things, few things cause me more like sadness and just honestly like pain is to hear people portray Jesus's sexual ethic as prude or irrelevant. Jesus designed every nuance of masculinity, femininity, male, female, biology, hormones, all of this stuff, let alone the institution of marriage, the design of sexuality, every nuance. There's like no nuance of it that he did not uniquely, personally, intentionally design for it to be good and to bring him glory. And he knows exactly how it is supposed to function so that it brings life and joy and human thriving to everyone who interacts with it. It's a powerful, beautiful thing. And it makes me so sad when people say Jesus' teaching on sexuality and ethics is irrelevant, it is outdated, it is patriarchal, it is misogynistic, all the other terms that people use to set it aside. Because when followed, it brings life and joy and peace and pleasure and glory to God. And yet we live in a world that says Jesus is irrelevant. And so Jesus is going to say some things that honestly um, are not going to be easy for a lot of people. But here's what I believe. When you follow Jesus Christ, this, this might be one of the most difficult asks of any Christian in 21st century America. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you submit every aspect of your life under his authority and his word, including your sexuality, and you begin to say no to the narratives and the designs of this world, and you say yes to what Jesus says is good and right and true and holy and life-giving that makes the image of God in you and every one of us come alive and brings God the most amount of glory. So when we find desires inside of us that are not congruent with what Jesus says are good and holy desires, we do not say something's wrong with the Bible. We say something's wrong with us. The problem is not with the designer and his perfect, righteous, genius plan. The problem is the brokenness inside of each of us. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is incumbent upon every one of us to subject every aspect of our mind and our hearts and our body, especially with the issue of sexuality, to the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. It is one of the most important things you can do, and honestly, in this new generation and this new liberal ideology that is coming out in a liberal sexual erotic ethic, this becomes paramount. This will be what separates you from the majority of people. It will be what separates your dating relationships, your private life, your marriages, how you interact sexually, how you discuss these things. It will become one of the most important distinguishing factors that sets you apart from the entire world, and you will be engaging if you do it Jesus' way in a way that brings you life and joy and pleasure and God glory. That, that is the goal. I believe that Christians should be the most healthy and functional sexually and that this should be something that we do to bring God glory. This is incumbent upon us in a, such a, we'll just say, perverted, sad world. I have a few questions here in this text. Number one, what does lust mean? Lust is a generic word in scripture. Here's what it means. Uh, sinful desires. You can lust after anything sinfully. It's a, a passion for something that doesn't bring God glory. How many of you have lust in any way in your body right now? Raise your hand because you, it's you. Okay, all of us. Everybody has lust inside of us, okay? Um, this is a reality because of sin. We want with passion sometimes the things that God says are going to hurt us. It's a broad word, but here it is exclusively focused on sexual lust. Lust are sexual thoughts, or lust is sexual thoughts um, that are intended to be so about somebody who's not your spouse. 
Now, this is gonna feel so prude to people who don't believe in God, don't believe in the Bible, and you look at a single person and you tell them, you mean Jesus expects me to control my mind in terms of how I intend to think about the opposite sex? And the answer of the church is yes. Number two, what is intent? Intent is about why you looked. If somebody is dressed out of the ordinary and they walk by you and you look, is that intent? The answer is no. Um, weird things require our brains almost to look or take a second glance sometimes. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Um, Jesus is talking about what is your intention? And the intention is not to notice something random. The intention is to lust. So you are not just glancing because you, something was weird in your peripheral vision. This is you know where something is and your eyes are looking to this place because you have an intent to either stare or take a snapshot. You know what I mean? You're either gonna stare like a weird, freaky gawker, don't do that, because that's just weird, don't, don't even do that, or what you do is, this is what most people do, is they look, glance, snapshot, mental photo album, there, save it for later, right? Um, and, and that's what he means, there is intent, there is a purpose, there is an intention. It's not just pure, it's not in, innocent, it's not haphazard, it's not even accidental, but what's interesting is that what Jesus is condemning, hear me, it's not even the lust, it's the intent to lust. Do you see that? He's not necessarily condemning adultery, although it's condemned. He's not necessarily condemning lust, although it's condemned. He's even getting closer to the heart issue, which is even the heart's intention to take something and then go lust after it. Now, I want to ask a question. Number three, why does Jesus hate lust so much? I have to tell you this, because you and me, by very nature of living in this culture, you're gonna be numb to what I'm about to tell you. And so, by and large, there might be one or two exceptions in this room, but you're gonna be numb to what I'm about to tell you. Because you and I, whether we like it or not, we are pervaded by this culture, it affects us, it is our heart language, and we have to work very, very hard when we don't feel the weight of things that Jesus is passionate about to get to a place where we feel that weight. And so there, there are two aspects, I believe, of why Jesus so hates lust. Number one, lust kills love, always. Lust uses, love gives. Lust takes, lust is purely selfish. Lust always kills love. The two can never in any singular moment coexist. There is no love, period, in the heart that is lusting. It's not able to exist. And last time I checked, is Jesus pretty serious about love? This is the love killer. You can be angry with somebody and still love them. You cannot lust after somebody and have a heart of love toward them. That's number one. But here's number two. Lust objectifies. Lust dehumanizes. Uh, this is going to be hard for some of you, and this will come full circle, I think, at the end of the sermon. Jesus prosecutes heart issues, correct? The heart, core heart issue of someone who lusts is no different or better than a slave owner. And I want you to hear me. Number one, you dehumanize them in your mind. It's the only way you're going to be able to rationalize what you're about to do with them physically or in your brain. Number two, you use their body for your gain. Number three, you cause them measurable harm. We'll talk about that later. 
Number four, you disregard them and their body until you need them again. That is what a slave owner does. You have no moral high ground to look at them and say, how could they, and then go home privately and look at pornography. And to go home and look with intent to use someone's body, dehumanize them, toss them away, cause them harm, and then use them again when you're done, only for your own evil purposes and gain. Now, I'm not saying on the practical side that they are the same, but the heart issue that drives both of them is the same. The motivations and the decisions that you have to make to get to that place are the exact same things. The way you see people, the way you treat people, the way you use people. And nobody in the middle of lust or pornography is going to stop in that moment and say, that's what I'm like. But I'm going to tell you that there is no difference. The same rationalization and justification used by slave owners is the same thing that you have to go through to get to a point where you can use a woman or a man for their body, disregard them despite the harm caused to them. Whether you're the owner or the user, you're still guilty. Here's my fourth question. What is Jesus fighting for? Last week we saw in anger, he's just like, get control of this thing. He's fighting for the unity of the church, right? What is Jesus fighting for? And being so passionate about what we do, not just with our mind, but the intent of the snapshots that we take. I want to just make it so clear to you. Jesus is fighting for your heart. This is what he's fighting for. I want to, I want to read to you um, one of the most important paragraphs I have ever read on lust. Blew my mind. I read this about 10 years ago. Here's what it says. Lust is not the result of an overactive sex drive. Catch that? It is not a biological phenomenon or the byproduct of our glands. If it were, then it could be satisfied with a sexual experience like a glass of water quenches thirst or a good meal satisfies appetite. But the more we attempt to appease our lust, the more demanding it becomes. There is simply not enough erotica in the world to satisfy, satisfy lust's insatiable appetite. When we deny our lustful obsessions, we are not, hear me, when we deny our lustful obsessions, we are not repressing a legitimate drive. We are putting to death an aberration. Now listen to this. This is, for me, the most important part. Lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell. Therefore, we Christians deny it, not in order to become sexless saints, but in order to be fully alive to our God, which includes the full and uninhibited expression of our sexual being within the God-given context of marriage. Lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell. This is not a natural, life-giving, necessary human impulse. It is an aberration. It is not healthy. It is not life-giving. And this is what is so hard for the American mind to understand. Because it is so normal, we know of no other reality. We do not know of the peace of mind. We know that we have to decide regularly who we will use in our mind and who we won't, but there is something far more beautiful when you get cancer out of your cells and you're released from its power and its influence, you experience the world very differently. Second, Jesus 
is not just fighting for your heart, he's fighting for your current or possibly your future marriage. The covenant of marriage is so deeply personal to Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll see in a bit, if you mess with marriage, you make God emotional and angry. Marriage is deeply personal to God because every marriage, wherever it exists, is a micro picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the nature and the character of God. Your marriage is deeply personal to God. And when you bring pornography or lust into your marriage, Jesus Christ takes it personally and he gets emotional about it. Some of you are not married. Here's the irony and the lie. Uh, men look at porn and they believe with all of their sincere hearts that the day will come when they get married and their porn addiction will stop because they will have a normal sexual relationship. And do you know what almost never happens? I've never heard of a case of it stopping. They go back to it eventually. Because what they realize is that their sex life and their porn addiction are totally separate issues. They're totally separate issues. But they profoundly impact each other. What they realize is what I brought into marriage in terms of aberrancy and addiction, that it sticks with me and it affects profoundly every part of my life. This is why we tell young, young ladies, um, one of the first things you need to figure out early on in this dating relationship is what is his level of porn addiction, his past relationship to porn, because I'll tell you, they need to be past it before they can function healthily in this relationship. And sometimes some girls have to look at a guy and say, you call me when you're free of it for six months and then you show me how you have measurably repented because I'm telling you, if he's not over it, he will bring it with him into the marriage. We see it over and over and over again. It's one of the greatest warnings I could give. And you might say, oh, but their heart, oh, but their heart. You need a man who is self-controlled and disciplined because once you commit to the covenant of marriage, his porn addiction is now all of your family's addiction. And this is powerful. And so we try to get young women on the front end of this and say, I'm trying to tell you here right now that this is not something that is just generally accepted and okay, it's powerful and it will be with you. But third thing, Jesus is fighting for the potency of his church. Few things, I can't think of anything more destructive to the mission of the church then hundreds of thousands or millions of Christian men and women spending hours of their day looking at pornography, lusting over women, having their heart and their soul made numb to the things of God and alive to erotica. I can't think of anything that has made the church more impotent and hypocritical. It steals your power. It affects profoundly your relationship with God. It causes discouragement and self-condemnation and uselessness. It causes spiritual depression and constant guilt before God. It's a powerful reality. And why does Jesus fight and speak so heavily against this? Because it's threatening the very mission of the church. It's threatening your marriage and it's threatening your heart. Three things he's incredibly passionate about. If you had an ounce of the passion for your heart or your marriage or your future marriage or your friend's marriage or the mission of the church, you would fight for this as hard as he does. Point number two in your notes, kill lust before it kills you. Here's what Jesus says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, I mean, this is big language here. Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into where? Hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members or body parts than your whole body go into where? Hell. Whoa, Pastor Michael. Lust seems so benign. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's just me. It's another set of cultural lies. All it affects is you. It's not true. It actually affects every woman you look at. And by the way, most women know when they walk into a restaurant or a Starbucks and eyes gaze, like you think they don't know, 
but they know. It actually does affect more than you. It affects your kids. It affects your spouse. It affects the women in your life. Notice, notice he makes, Jesus makes two ridiculous hypotheticals. Number one, tear it out and throw it away. That's what you do with your right eye. This is like violent language, by the way. It's like gouge out your eye with your hand, and then you take your left hand, whatever. Uh, cut off your right hand, throw it away as far as you can. Okay, let's just put it on the table. This should be so obvious to you, but if it's not, like, let somebody go home and self-mutilate here. Uh, does Jesus want you to gouge out your right eye? Your left eye? Any part of your body? Is there anything he wants you to hack off with a saw and throw it away? The answer is, of course, No. Uh, I, I would ask Jesus if I was in this moment, I was super literal and I didn't understand hyperbole, exaggeration for the sake of effect. Um, I would say, Jesus, how in God's green earth could cutting off a body part change my heart? Because the body part was just, it was just an expression of what's already inside of me. I mean, the real problem is my heart. This is, this is what's really, really going on here. And, and again, Jesus is, is trying to get to the point of the severity of this issue. But there's a bigger point here, and, and, and it would go something like this. What you do in your heart will damn your body to hell. What you do in your heart is so important. You just, it's, this is a big deal. That's what Jesus is really trying to get at. Do whatever it takes to eradicate and kill lust because its objective is to kill you and damn your heart. Kill it. You have to. This is dire and it's urgent. For me, it's, it's not amazing. It's just not amazing that men and women enter into sexual sin. I see it, I get it, I understand it. What is truly astounding to me is what men and women will give up and sacrifice for sexual sin. That is what blows me away. Long-standing relationships of love and trust shattered. Kids lose their parents, scarred by sorrow and guilt, Daughters wondering if they can trust dads. Son wondering if this is normal. Wanting to respect their dads. They surrender their careers. They surrender money. They surrender marriages. The things that people are willing to give up, it's profound, which shows you the sheer power of lust. That lust, by its very nature, it's never content to just be. It grows, it consumes, and its desired and inevitable outcome is to express itself. So before we move on to this text, I wanna just take a few minutes with you and I wanna share with you um, a biblical principle and I wanna show you how this principle works itself out in scripture. And here's the biblical principle. Uh, it may seem a little weird at first, but not all sins are created equal. Not all sins are created equal. Uh, what I mean by this is very simply, um, all sins will damn you to hell, but not all sins will have the same devastating effects. You know this intuitively, um, but there are some things that really, really aggravate God, and he is wired into the rhythm of our life that when you do these things, they take control of your life quickly and then consume you, okay? What's interesting is that the things that God is most passionate about our culture has by and large said not important. Marriage, not important. Divorce, optional. Little kids, babies, abortion, uh, they're just uh, uh, tissues and cells. Um, your sexual life, your lust and pornography, ah, uh, no big deal, right? All these things that Jesus gets really heated about, 
culture is making no big deal. And this is our cultural heart language, which is why we need to preach on it. And you and I, both of us, we need to repent of the lies we've believed, even the lies we didn't even know we were believing and we believe them. And so I want to read some of these for you. And, and these, if you're a believer in Jesus, they shouldn't be new thoughts necessarily. But what I want to do is I want to ask you this question. Do you feel the weight of these things like Jesus feels the weight of them? So let's start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll have these on the screen so you can see them. Do you want to know what the will of God is, by the way? I, this is really funny. What's God's will? He breaks through all of this and he talks about sexuality. For this is the will of God. If God could just like, if he could tell you all one thing, get your sexuality under control and everything else is going to be a lot better. For this is the will of God, your holiness. Okay, what does that mean? That you abstain from sexual immorality. What does that mean? That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like non-Christians do who don't know God. Now, this is where I want to go on to verse 6. This is the passage that so many people have never read, and I want to submit it to you. And this, for me, was one of the scariest passages I've ever read when I understood it for the first time. Why? That no one, verse 6, transgress and wrong his brother. Christian to Christian is what we're talking about here, sexual immorality between one Christian to another. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Why? Hear this. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Have you ever considered that? That there is something about your sexuality that is so personal to God that in the church, listen to me, if you're dating, if you're engaged, if you're single, right? If you're married or looking at porn, just hear me. Jesus Christ takes it so personally that Paul says, you turn him into an avenger against you. Now, I'm not saying you're going to hell. That's not the point of this. I'm saying that this is personal, and I prefer to keep Jesus as my God, who, like him and I, are copacetic. We're sympathetic. Things are good, right? I do not want to be on the avenging side of Jesus Christ because I am unable to control my body. Now, here's the deal. If you are a follower of Jesus, do you have the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes, which means you have self-control, which means you are now responsible and able to control your body. He says in verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Hebrews 13, 4, let's see how God feels about marriage. Let marriage be held in high honor among all. Like marriage is beautiful and it is good and it is honorable and the sexual relationship and marriage brings God much glory and you much joy. And let the marriage bed, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife be undefiled, pure. Indulge yourselves, enjoy what God has given you in this context. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. We're gonna deal with adultery next week. Uh, but do you find that Jesus takes this personally? It doesn't stop there, Ephesians 5.5. 5. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, I mean, I want you to hear the weight. This is why I have to ask you, do you put the same weight on your sexual purity that scripture does? 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, which is what sexual immorality is, it's coveting that which is not yours, that God has not intended for you, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And here's the clincher, 1 Corinthians 6.18. This is the one that I think is just like the most direct in terms of getting to the core issue. Here's what Paul says. Flee from sexual immorality. You've heard me say this a million times. If Satan himself came toe-to-toe with you, do you flee or do you stand up to him and stare him in the eyeballs? You stare him in the eyeballs and he's required to flee from you if you're a believer in Jesus. You don't dare stand toe-to-toe with sexual immorality. The moment you come toe-to-toe with that, you run as fast as you possibly can and you get out. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's almost, I almost imagine that you have this kid and he's thinking about um, some kind of sexual immorality. I almost feel like Paul would say, I'd rather you go like punch someone in the face, break into like a shopping center and go to jail for a year than give yourself over to this because there's something so categorically different about this thing that God has reserved sexuality, that it is its own unique and distinct experience that nothing, no other sin in your life so disastrously affects your own body as this one. It is a sin against your own nature and your soul and your body and your relationships. It is actually really interesting because in scripture, it's of a different category. God gets emotional about sexuality because it uniquely mars image bearers, destroys marriages, and makes the mission of the church just not happen. Like, can you see why Jesus is passionate about this? And so here's our question. I see what you say, Jesus. I see how you feel. Do I feel the same way about it as you do? And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount comes back to this. You and I struggle. We are not okay. We are lawbreakers. The point of me even getting to this point in the sermon is not to say, you're a terrible person. We are all bad people. Listen to last week's message if you don't agree with me on that one. We're not okay. But Jesus takes very, very broken people with high propensity to uncontrolled anger, uncontrolled lust, and he brings powerful, profound, measurable, visible healing and redemption. Lust kills. Jesus saves and resurrects. And they're two totally different categories. And at the end of the day, what Jesus is trying to get to in the Sermon on the Mount is stop trying to be a good person and rely on that to make you okay with me. We're not okay. You are broken. And when you come to grips with that fact, then you can come to me and get healed. If there's one outcome of the Sermon on the Mount, it's not simply just behavior modification. It's that every person would own their brokenness, get on their face and repent and say, Jesus, heal me because I, in my own decisions, with my own will, have corrupted my own heart and soul and mind and body Would you heal me because no one else has the capacity to do it? So what? I want to close with a few questions. How do I know if my lust is a struggle or evidence of my lack of salvation? Have you ever wondered this? I have rarely met a young junior high, senior high, or college age boy or man that has not struggled to some degree with this question. They may not have vocabulary to articulate it like this. This is why moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you gotta get clear-headed on how you lovingly shepherd your children 
through their cultural heart language and through the lust that they are being offered at every point, almost every day of their life. And so here are a couple of things that I tell people. I, I, first, I want to know, have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ? We have to start baseline. And if you know your kids, you know whether or not they've trusted in Christ. And, and you've got to do your kids a favor and make a distinction between the, the prayer they prayed when they were four, right, and their heart. Because you know their heart. You know it. You see it. You see their love for the world, their love for Christ. Now, are your kids sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God? The answer is absolutely, right? But sometimes... Parents will sit down and talk with their kids, and their kids are so astray, have no submission to Jesus Christ in any part of their life. And they say, but they prayed a prayer when I was four. Uh, John Piper said it, said it the best. He said, when somebody is knee-deep in sexual immorality, I will never tell them if they've trusted in Christ, I'm never going to tell them they're going to hell. I am not their judge. I do not know. But somebody who is an unrepentant, unwilling, sexual, unwilling to change sexual sin, here's what I will tell them. I can give you no confidence of your salvation. I will not tell you you're going to hell. That is between you and God, and he will be the arbiter of that decision. But I can't look at you and give you confidence. But here's what I do want to see. When someone is caught, how do they respond? Do they hide or expose? Like These are little things that you look for. Because inevitably, if God loves you, he's going to expose you. I know that's really hard to hear. I've, I've said this to many of you privately. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've never seen somebody overcome porn addiction on their own until they get exposed or until they bring other people into it and expose the, expose the issue of their own free will. And so uh, I'll just step back for a moment and say, how do they respond? Is their heart rebellious or is their heart broken? What I find with the majority of junior high and senior high and college age students is their hearts are broken. And they feel so sad. They want something better. They accidentally, honestly, <clears throat> many of them accidentally gave control and power of their sexuality to lust a long time ago. And they never had the tools to overcome it. They never had the conversations or the spaces or the places to be able to get what they need. And it's wrecking them. I can look at anybody who is wrecked in their private sin and who wants to overcome it and say, that is, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go do this. And give them the tools that they need. <clears throat> I, I just try to make a distinction between hard-heartedness and a desire to overcome. They're very different spirits and you know it when you see it. Uh, I think one of the greatest tools that is missing is very simply good teaching. How can somebody live with conviction of something they've never been taught is wrong? Or when their primary tutor in life is TV school, public education, and culture? And we don't intervene and engage in developed, robust, and deep, and meaningful ethics and sexuality and philosophy and ideas and creation and science. Like, if we're not developing robust ideas in our kids, we'll never win the battle. And so, so many kids are just honestly victims to no training and no teaching, and they're reiterating what they've heard their whole life. But then we enter in and we show them God's word, and they see something more compelling, more beautiful, more life-giving. If you look at most young people and you say, would you like to have control back over your sexuality? They would say, I would give anything to have control over this again. But they don't know how to do it. So many of the tools that they, that they do not have is just bad teaching or no teaching. Here's a question. What about porn? Uh, Jesus didn't deal with porn in, this, in his world. Um, I believe truly that if Jesus sat down with the American church and he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he absolutely with 100% certainty, would have included porn into this discussion. Porn is the amplifier of lust. It takes what is already there and gives it 
unbelievable control over us. It is so sad and it is so powerful, it is so potent that the human mind has no capacity to deal with it without external intervention. That is how powerful it is. And I am looking at man and woman and man and woman and man and woman in this room right now that I know personally that it chose you in a sense. It came to you and it took control of you and consumed you. You did in sixth grade and fourth grade. I was in kindergarten the first time that I ever saw porn. And you know where it was? At a t-ball game, a bunch of magazines at the bottom of a dumpster. Some guy probably got convicted and he took all of his porn stash, threw it in a dumpster on a t-ball field. Burn it next time, right? Just a little advice for y'all. And I will never forget seeing it. I'm like, huh, I'd never seen anything like that. And I would, like, never seen it. I didn't choose that. I didn't choose that. That that moment chose me. And thankfully, I didn't grow up in that age in an internet, in the age of the internet, where it was just everywhere. I'm so grateful for that. But there's some people at third grade, first grade, fourth grade, the average exposure to pornography now, it's going down and down. I believe the latest numbers I looked at were 11 years old is when the average kid is exposed to explicit pornography, right? What do you do with that? These kids aren't equipped. We're not equipped to deal with this stuff. And I believe Jesus would sit down and say, uh, so many of you have been victims to this and it rewires your brain. It rewires your chemistry. It makes you a functional drug addict. That's what brain scans are telling us is that it actually rewires every part of you. And it is such a huge issue that just telling somebody, well, pull up your bootstraps and get over it isn't enough because you're functionally an addict. So how do we enter into that world How do we enter into this whole new world of people who have been victimized as young kids and are are literally don't know what to do and they don't have the tools and they don't have the freedom and they don't have the hope and they don't have the space? Like, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. And so I have no issues. And I can say junior hires, you should be in here because probably the majority of junior hires in your home have already seen pornography and they haven't told you. That's the sad part. I experienced 10 years ago being a youth pastor, the amount of things that the kids would tell me and moms and dads would say, oh, my kid would never. And I'm like, Oh, it's just killing me. And I'm like, no, they have. Some hard realities about porn. It amplifies your lust, number one. It exposes your inability to control lust. I've yet to meet a man who looks at porn and is in control of his lust. Porn changes you, literally, your brain chemistry. And I want you to hear me finally. Porn makes you culpable. Porn makes you culpable of explicitly and implicitly supporting the sex slave industry, period. No questions asked. Latest estimates, American porn, international porn, is that the majority of pornography that you watch is from a sex slave who has a lot to risk if they don't look interested. That will change the way you look at it. That could be your daughter. That could be your son. That's what's crazy. And what happens is if there were no porn in America, there would be no sex slave industry or it would be very small. Every time you look, you are culpable. You are supporting, you are engaging, and you are bringing it to life, and you are the people of God, and I am the people of God. Like, that's profound. It's interesting, because I can talk to men, and I can tell them, um, stop looking at porn. It's gonna hurt you, it's gonna hurt people, it's gonna hurt your marriage, it's gonna hurt your spouse, and it's not enough to get it. But there's something about this fact that I find stops men in their tracks and makes them think twice. It actually gets in their brain and they can't get it out of their head because intuitively in the social justice world, we would never advocate the exploitation, the kidnapping of boys and girls and women all over the world to be abused and used for sex so that we could voyeuristically watch them, right? Whether you pay for it or not, whether you watch it or not, it doesn't matter, you're culpable. Every person who looks at porn is culpable of supporting that. And this is why I say you're no different than a slave owner. Because what you do is you dehumanize them, 
You, you bring the image of God in them to nothing as if they're an animal that can be used for your own goods. You ultimately um, exploit them for your own satisfaction. When you're done with them, you throw them away until you need them again. And this is why I say, like, this isn't a little issue. This is huge. And as Christians, somehow we got to get the courage and the boldness and the ability and the tools to do something really, really different. Question number three, how do I overcome porn addiction? I cannot answer that right now, (laughs) just to be clear. Um, Here's what I can share with you. Last week on our Q&A podcast, we did three episodes on pornography. Isn't porn a normal experience for individuals and couples? Pastor Tim and I tackled that one. Uh, In 458, episode number 458, porn in the sex slave industry, I interviewed a couple ladies in our church about the pervasiveness of this issue and what that means practically. I asked them at the end, what advice would you give to men addicted to porn specifically? Um, Episode number 459, uh, Pastor Tim and I discussed how do I actually overcome porn addiction. These are meant to be catalysts, meant to be helpful next steps for you, next tools. If you don't know where the Village Church Q&A podcast is, it's in on our website, it's on the Village Church app, it's on the podcast store, you can find it. If you don't know where it is, find somebody who's under, you know, 40 and they can help you figure out where that is. Uh, I don't know how to say that any other way. Uh, lastly, this is my last just encouragement. Um, tomorrow night, uh, my wife and a handful of people are going to be um, leading a one-hour class during Awana, and it's called Parenting Kids in a Virtual World. We're not going to be talking explicitly about pornography, but the reality is um, how do we raise our kids in a digital world that loves them? Grandparents, parents, if you want to have an influence on the next generation, uh, how do we redeem culture and tech to the glory of God? Um, how do we lovingly shepherd our kids um, in this really strange time. You can sign up for that on our Village Church app again or Facebook, but the space is limited. So if you do want to get in, you might have to go in um, during the middle of communion, ignore what I'm saying, and sign up for that. Conquer, Conquer series. Yeah, can you tell me about, Tim, just, yeah. Um, so it's, I, I know we're, we're in two weeks, right? But it goes for six more weeks on Saturday mornings, right? What time? 7.30 in the morning, if you're a dude. Sign up on the app. Hey, FYI, we have a Village Church app, if you don't know about that. Sign up on the app, take notes on the app, sign up on the app, find our podcast on the app, sign up on the app. Conquer series, and, uh, and just by the way, just because you go, doesn't mean that you're admitting that you have some terrible sin in your life that's ruining everything. Preemptive measures are sometimes the best measures to take. And if you can get the tools even before some of this stuff controls you or takes your life, you will be so much more blessed for it. Thank you, Tim, for that. Sin is great. Jesus is greater. Communion is this beautiful moment. <clears throat> we, we just recalibrate for a moment. We, we're facing our lust. We're facing our anger. We're facing our issues. We're looking at it. It's, it's there. Lust is powerful. Jesus is infinitely more powerful. Lust condemns you. Jesus forgives you. Lust controls you, steals from you. Jesus frees you and gives you life. Adultery destroys your life and family. Jesus heals your life and your family. We're guilty, every one of us. This is the Sermon on the Mount because of what we have done and what we have intended to do, what we ought to have done and what we should have done and because of what we could have done. But Jesus was perfect for us in our place. When we come to communion, this is not a declaration that you've been a good boy or good girl this week. This is the declaration that you are broken and that the only way you can be made right with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ. This is the declaration that being good doesn't cut it because no one's good enough. In fact, no one's good. It's a declaration that Jesus is holy and he was good for you 
in your place.